Uh, well, when you think of uh, passages people tend to preach on around Advent or Christmas time, uh, I don't think Philippians 2 is usually too high on the list. Um, it's not like a traditional Christmas passage. It's not a prophecy of uh, Jesus' coming in the future. It's not um, a narrative piece about the facts of Jesus' birth in Bethlehem. But it does get to the heart of what it means uh, for Jesus to have been born uh, for us. You might be familiar with the word, or you might not, that um, theologians tend to use to talk about the Son of God coming into the world. It's his incarnation. Uh, something which one of the church fathers, a man called Cyril from Alexandria, called the inmanment of God. It's God becoming one of us at Christmas. I want us to pause this evening and wonder at this mystery of the incarnation of the inmanment of the Son of God. Uh, mostly from the second half of our reading, and hopefully to see uh, why this is such good news of great joy, like the angel said on the day that Jesus was born. Uh, But first, just a quick word on uh, context. Verses 1 to 4 are mostly going to be in the background for us this evening, uh, but they're really important, and it's important we don't skip over them. Uh, This section in verses 5 or 6 to 11 gives us some great truth about the Lord Jesus and who he is, we could spend hours and hours considering them. But if we did that and then didn't become the kind of people Paul is exhorting us to be, it wouldn't be worth anything, really. Paul includes this section in his letter to encourage the church to be unified in all they do, to have the same mind, verse 2, have the same love, be of full accord and of one mind, to be unified, to be humble people who consider each other as more important than themselves. And he holds up Christ as the supreme example of this. And he'll talk as well a bit later on in chapter 2 about how Timothy and Epaphroditus are also good examples of this. So this evening as we look at Jesus, as we marvel at who he is and why this is good news, we should pray not only that God would give us greater faith in his son and love for him, uh, but also power from the spirit to live in a Christ-like way, to live in a way that um, is also humble, just like Jesus. So that out of the way, first I want us to think about Jesus, the humble God. Jesus, the humble God, from verses 5 um, to 7. I want us to look at this relatively slowly, hopefully not too slowly, won't keep you here all evening. <laughs> but phrase by phrase, so we can understand what Paul's saying here and also what he's not saying. Okay? So, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, though he was in the form of God. There's a danger we might run into wrong thinking when we read that word and uh, those words and misunderstand what Paul's saying. He's not saying that Jesus is kind of a form of God. That's not what he means. It doesn't mean that he's a bit like God, but not really God. That he's kind of been formed to look like a small g God to us, but isn't really God. No, that's not what Paul's saying. That's in fact, that's a, a heresy that <laughs> was taught by someone called Arius. If you want to keep track of your heresy names, it's called Arianism, named after him. It's always a bad thing to have a heresy named after you. It's not good, is it? It's this idea that the Son of God isn't really God. He's not truly God. He's kind of a created being who acts as though he was God to us, but he's not really. But it's just flat out wrong and cuts against not only what Paul is actually saying here, but also what Jesus says about himself in the Gospels. Jesus says to the man who is paralyzed, who he heals, son, your sins are forgiven. 
The Pharisees are outraged. Who can forgive sins but God alone, they say. Well, yes, <laughs> that's the point. He's not just a form of God, he is God himself. And so he does have authority to forgive sins. He says to the disciples after his resurrection, as he breathes on them, receive the Holy Spirit. Who can give the Holy Spirit but God himself? He says, before Abraham was, I am. He uses God's own name with, to identify with himself, that he is the I am God who spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai. Who can say that but God? You might have a different translation if you're reading from um, another translation that might say something like, though he was in very nature God. That's, the, that's what Paul means here. It's very helpful, I think. That Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God the Father and shares everything with him. He shares his nature along with him and the Holy Spirit. And so against Arius, when he was around in the 300s, the church taught this instead at a, a council, a place called Nicaea in Turkey. They said, we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father. And then there's some words you might know from a Christmas carol, from a come all ye faithful. It comes from here. God of God, light of light, true God of true God, begotten, not created, of one substance with the Father. If that all goes over your head, if that's too much theological language, it means is that God the Son shares with the Father everything that it means to be God. All that it means to be God, we can say is true of Jesus. He's immortal. The Son is almighty. He's eternal. He's the creator. He's our provider. He's our redeemer. He's all-powerful. He knows all things. All that it means for God to be God, we find in his Son, together with the Father and the Spirit, is the one God, God the Trinity. He was in the form of God. But though he was in the form of God, Paul says, he did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. Again, there's a danger we can misunderstand what Paul is saying here. He's not saying that Jesus wasn't equal with the Father and wanted to grasp after something that wasn't his already. We've already gone over that, really. He's not trying to work his way up to grasp after something that's not his. He already is in the form of God. He already shares with the Father everything it means to be God. But although he enjoyed this equality with God, Paul says, he enjoys everything that it means to be God together with the Father. He doesn't count it as something to be grasped. What does that mean? Again, you might have another translation that says something like, he didn't consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. It's very helpful. It gets to the heart of what Paul is saying here, I think. God, the Son, who, as we said, he is everything it means to be God, along with the Father, doesn't consider his power as God to be something he should use for his own advantage. He's not precious about holding on to his status. He's not concerned about using his power to advance himself, but instead uses it as a means to bring us life and salvation. And it's important we understand this because you might be thinking that this kind of humility we're talking about in Jesus maybe doesn't marry up with what says, God says elsewhere in the scriptures about being concerned for his glory. But what is it about God that makes him glorious? He tells us himself in Exodus 34, uh, verse 6, he says, he declares his name to Moses, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious 
slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And he goes on and on. And God declares his name to Moses when he reveals the heart of who he is to him, what his character is. He shows himself to be a merciful God. That that is what is glorious about him, that he loves sinners who have not loved him. That he continues to love sinners who have rejected him, who is full of compassion and who gives himself for his people despite their rebellion. Paul, elsewhere in Romans, quoting somewhere in the Old Testament, I can't remember, says, all day long, God holds his hands out to a rebellious and obstinate people. That is what it means for God to be glorious. And we see all this most clearly displayed in Jesus Christ. Think of him standing, looking at Jerusalem and weeping over her, longing for her to come to him, longing to gather her uh, to him like a hen gathers her chicks, calling her to repentance that she might be saved and yet knowing that she will be destroyed. It's glorious that when, that he came into the world not to condemn it as John tells us in the gospel, but to save us. And that the reason for God coming into the world as a man is because of his great love for us, that we might not perish but have eternal life. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, used his divine power, not for his own advantage, but for us, for you. He used his great power for you. He gave himself in love for you. That is what makes him the glorious God. Let's hurry on. He didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. Again, there's, you might be spotting a pattern, there's a danger here. We can start to um, think of God becoming man at Christmas as meaning that, well, he must have to get rid of some parts of his being God for, for him to become one of us. He, he can't really be truly and completely God to become one of us. He has to get rid of something. That's not the case. It's mind-blowing and difficult to get our heads around, and we never truly will. As we, we sang earlier, the Father only, the Son can comprehend. But we need to keep in our minds that all the while, while Jesus was lying in a manger, according to his human nature, he was also sitting on the throne of the universe. He is still true and eternal God, even while he's in his mother's arms. Although his human body can only be in one place, he's also, according to his divine nature, filling all things. Although he really experienced death on the cross for us in his human nature, he's also fully alive together with his Father and the Holy Spirit. This is why people call it a mystery of the Incarnation, that it really is God who's become a man. Not God without some of his God-likeness, but really God. Jesus, of course, obscures his divine power at points in his earthly life, and deliberately until his resurrection, where Paul says he is revealed to be the Son of God in power, but he still was the son of God throughout the entirety of his life. He didn't get rid of any of his divinity. If that would be the case, he wouldn't really be truly God anymore. It wouldn't really be God who'd become man. Not only that, but the Trinity would have been broken apart. God wouldn't have been God. You might have another translation here that, again, that says something like Jesus made himself nothing or of no reputation. And that's true, and that's what Paul will go on to say. I think he means something else here, that 
before coming to Jesus's human life, which he'll talk of in a moment, he talks about the God of the Son pouring himself out, emptying himself into a human nature. In other words, it means that he hasn't lost anything by becoming one of us, by becoming a human. He hasn't got rid of anything. He has added something, a human nature, to himself. He is always what he has always been and what he always will be. But now he also is human. Or to put it in perhaps strictly biblical language, like Paul says in Colossians, all the fullness of God dwells bodily in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the humble God. Secondly, Jesus is the humble man. Paul uh, moves on and says he emptied himself, how? By taking the form of a servant. I think this is not the same thing as what Paul will say next, which is that he was born in the likeness of men. That, In other words, that he became a real man. What I think he means here is that Jesus has subjected himself to living in a fallen world, to living in a world full of the consequences of sin. Adam and Eve were real human beings, and yet they were not sinful people before they fell. They were really human before they fell. Sin is not like an essential part of being human. After the fall, obviously, all of us are born in sin. But we were made to live without sin. And which, of course, is what Jesus did. And we find elsewhere in the scriptures that Jesus lived a life perfectly free of sin. And being the true God, he did not sin at all in any of his earthly life as a human. But he did subject himself to living in a fallen world. And out of sympathy for us, took on that form of a servant. So he willingly, deliberately, voluntarily subjected himself to living in a world where he lost loved ones just like we do, to experiencing life-threatening hunger and thirst in the wilderness, to being betrayed by his friends, to all manner of things that sin has brought into this world and yet without sinning himself. In other words, God hasn't become a, a man in Jesus Christ in order to live in a bubble completely isolated from the rest of us. No, he's become truly God with us, which is what Emmanuel means that we were singing of this morning. That's the reason that in Isaiah's prophecy we read this evening, he says, to us a child is born, to us a son is given. He is truly one of us, experiencing the effects of sin along with us and yet not sinning himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Again, there's a danger here. Some people have tried to say this means, well, Jesus wasn't really a man, but he was like a man. That he kind of seemed to be human, but he wasn't really. Again, if you want to keep track of your heresy names, this one's called docetism, which means, means seem. That, that almost that God wouldn't really want to subject himself to being human because it's just a bit gross. How could he want to do that? No. <laughs> what Paul means is that the eternal son of God became a real man a real human being just like us in our likeness. And yet, as we said already, completely without sin. Again, there's a danger there. We could say, well, yes, Jesus was truly human, but that must have mean he had a sinful nature. But no, scripture tells us he was without sin. It means not only that he didn't commit any actual sins, he also didn't have a corrupted humanity like we do. 
And yet his humanity is really ours. It's really our humanity. It's true both that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and that he was born from Mary. Gabriel says to Mary in uh, Luke 1 verse 35 of uh, Jesus' birth, the Holy Spirit will come upon Mary. The power of the Most High will overshadow her. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. The child will be called the Son of God. He's really a human child in Mary's womb with her own DNA, one of us. And yet the child in her womb is also the eternal Son of God in human likeness. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Of course, Jesus didn't stay in Mary's womb. He was born. He grew up. He found favour with God and with men. And Paul tells us again that Jesus continued to humble himself. It's almost as though in this passage we can see Jesus descending further and further and further down until the point of death and death on a cross. But becoming a human and living among sinful people isn't all he has come to do. He humbles himself further. So remember again, he is everything that it means to be God. And so he doesn't need to be obedient to anyone. He is the one to whom we should be obedient. Yet he willingly subjects himself to obedience to death, death on a cross. Jesus, who is himself the way, the truth, the life, gives up his own life for us. And no one forces Jesus to do this. He tells us in John 10 verse 18, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. Who else has that kind of power over life and death but God himself? Which one of us can say, I have authority to die and I have authority to come back to life? None of us. And yet it's so human to die, isn't it? God cannot die. But God, the eternal son, has truly experienced death according to his human nature. Paul speaks to the elders in Ephesus in Acts chapter 20 about the church of God, which he obtained for us with his own blood. It's an astonishing statement that God has obtained the church with his own blood, that God has took on flesh and blood in Jesus so that he might shed his own blood for us. And it's not just any death, it's death on a cross, the worst kind of public humiliation you can experience, death cursed by God under the law, through which Jesus became a curse for us, scripture tells us, that he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. Jesus is the humble man. And the last thing is that Jesus is now the exalted God-man. He is the exalted God-man. I've said um, already that you can see that Jesus is kind of descending further and further down, humbling himself so much. It's the complete opposite of self-advancement. It's the complete opposite of climbing up a greasy pole uh, in a workplace looking to be promoted. He's not seeking to find honour or recognition by doing things that seem impressive. He's making himself nothing. I remember, that's the same attitude we are to have in pouring out ourselves for one another in the church. And look then in verse 9, what the result is of this. Therefore, because of this, God has exalted him and bestowed on him 
the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. We said already, Jesus, of course, didn't stay dead. He took up his own life again. He was raised on the third day. He's ascended into heaven. He now reigns over all things as the man who is God, who has saved us. Now, Jesus, obviously, as we've said already, because he shares everything it means to be God with the Father, he deserves to be exalted. He deserves to be worshipped simply because he is God. And he's always enjoyed that perfect unity with his Father and the Spirit. This exaltation is rightly his. And yet, Paul says, the reason he's been exalted is because of his great humility. Because he's used his divinity for our advantage, for our salvation. Because he has become a real human being. Because he's experienced the effects of sin in the world while not becoming sinful himself. Because he has chosen to die for us and to take our sins on himself. In other words, because he is that glorious, merciful, gracious God. Uh, that God reveals himself to be in Exodus, who has now become one of us, he is exalted in heaven right now and pleads for you before the Father. But there's a reason for his exaltation. Why has God exalted him? So that, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This exaltation has the purpose that we should also recognise. Jesus is this God-man who is worthy to be praised, to be exalted. One day, Paul is saying, every knee will bow in heaven, on earth, under the earth, and will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. But it matters that we recognise him as Lord now, so that we might enjoy the new creation we were speaking about this morning in the presence of of our Lord and our God. And don't we want to know this kind of God? God who is glorious because he uses great displays of power, not for his own um, self-advancement, but for our own good. He displays his power through humility. God who considers his divinity something to be used for our salvation. He became our brother, a true human being like us and yet who didn't suffer from the same self-destructive sinful tendencies as we do, who's died voluntarily so that we can have life in him. If we want to know this God, we should turn away from ourselves, turn away from our ways of self-advancement that Paul speaks about in uh, those first verses, that selfish ambition, that conceit, and instead turn towards Jesus Christ who has humbled himself for us and for our salvation.